This is OTR-FM, part of the IOM Radio Network. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome. Joining us this week to share the 10 best spiritual books that inspired him the most on his life journey is writing coach, spiritual counsellor and accomplished screenwriter Mark David Gerson, who is a prolific writer with 21 books published and three more on the go. So we know how much he really loves books. Um, and he's written all kinds of books from fiction to personal development, self-help guides, compelling memoirs, and a fantasy series um, that seems to keep going and going and going because I think <laughs> you're working on the fifth one, you said. Is that correct, Mark? That is correct. Yes. It's, well, it's good to have you with us. It's wonderful to be back uh, with you, Sandy. It's great. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've had a conversation. It has. Mm. So you found this task much tougher than you expected. Why was that? Well, you know, my spiritual awakening was 30 some years ago. Um, so it was, and I think some, I, I've watched some of your other videos and, and, and some of other, other guests and it was like time traveling, you know, it was like, it was like turning the clock back in time to who I was then, what was I was, what I was going through then and um, what I was reading and what I was discovering and learning back then. And to complicate matters, um, seven times over the past 20 something years, I have shed everything I have owned um, and that included all those books. So um, trying to kind of piece back together all that time without actually having the books in hand was a little more challenging. But, but what helped was that um, over the years I keep, I keep quotes of favorite quotes from favorite books. And I was able to go back and, and kind of travel back in time and look at some of those quotes and, and remember some of those books, some of which I'd actually forgotten and go, oh yeah. Oh yeah, they they really did make a difference. It's um, you said about having shed shed everything so many times. I'm with you there. I've done it too. Was the hardest part of the shedding, letting go of the books? Oh yeah, in fact, yeah. <laughs> like the first time I did it, um, I had hardly any pictures on my walls. I had bookcases everywhere, um, and um, the first place I lived on my own, um, there was an amazing secondhand bookstore just around the corner. Um, and I'm afraid I was an addict. Um, I would walk in there my way home from work, my way out every, every day, and I'd almost every day come home with, with books. In fact, I was unemployed for I know, three or four months at one point, and it took every ounce of self-discipline not to walk into that store during, during that period. Um, 
before I left, I didn't have a car. And I actually called secondhand book dealers to come to my house to buy the books because I had no way of getting them out. There, there were that many. So yeah, it was mm. that was tough. And I've never, I mean, you see books behind me, but I've never owned that many books since. When, you know, when I was leaving America to come back to England um, and had to get rid of all my books, which I'd, you know, taken most of them across the Atlantic in the first place, <laughs> I, the only way I could actually get rid of them was to take pictures of every cover uh-huh. and keep it on my phone so that I could look for them in secondhand bookshops when right. I got back to <laughs> I get it. Well, of course, now we have ebooks, which which does make that a little bit easier. Back then, that wasn't an option. Yeah. Um, mm. And although I have replaced some of my music over the years, I also got rid of all – I had a ton of LPs. Remember LPs? I had a oh, ton of yes. LPs and CDs. I kept some of the CDs because they were more portable, but all the LPs went. So, you know, thanks to streaming music, I was, I've been able to kind of rebuild some of, the, some of that library. Except, you know, with the uh, resurgence of uh, vinyl again, we're all looking for those right. LPs that we got <laughs> Yeah, I have a 22-year-old daughter who um, was heavily into cassettes for a while, heavily into LPs for a while. I think maybe even into 8-track for a while. Remember 8-track? Um, <laughs> so that was kind of strange for me, um, but yeah, I, I I remember buying her buying her cassettes for for, for presents. Mm, yeah, wow. <laughs> you know your um, your description of this process and how it mm-hmm. affected you is, I think it's one of the um, the best ones I've read because oh, it really you. does for me encapsulate everything. Everything that uh, that I wanted this process to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've got, got it in front of you. I do, I do. I, I cheated and I and I printed. I printed that's, it. Out. That's, that's, that's <laughs> fine. So you said each book on your list gave you permission to look within. Read the rest of that for us. Sure, I've got to find it first. Hang on a second. Um, uh, Okay. Um, In its own way, each gave me permission to look within in ways I never before dared do, and each offered me a key into inner worlds beyond anything I could ever have consciously imagined. Today, I find threads in all those books that connect what I was then, what I was then only discovering, with who I have become, with what I now write and teach, and with the journey that got me here. You know, it's easy to just, you know, skip over that but I think if you really take that apart uh, it really does encapsulate Mm -hmm. what this kind of process can do for us and what the books themselves do for us because they live within us and they become part of who we become absolutely and whether they're you know they've all scattered clearly over the years those 10 books and the many dozens of others I read at that time Mm. Um, it was astounding to go back to some of those quotes and look for some of those, you know, look for look for some of those books online and and kind of reacquaint myself with them and, and say, wow, this is this is kind of who I've become, and I had not made I had not connected those dots until I was forced to go back and look at those books. Mm. So, how did you actually narrow down the list? <laughs> well, that was hard. Um, first, I had a you know, first I went back and looked for a but for a bunch of books I could possibly use. Um, part of it was choosing the ones that um, felt the most profound to me as I, re- as I remembered. 
Um, part of it, frankly, was finding enough about them that I remembered that I could actually use them in, 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 in an intelligent way. Um, but really, you know, it was mostly trying to reconnect with those moments in time, with who I was in, with what I was going through. And you know, most of these books um, I read during the time of my, of my spiritual awakening and then a little bit later my creative awakening because they both kind of happened hand in glove. Um, so they were, I read them all around, you know, over the same several years. Um, and I was, I, as I said, as I said, I, I was astounded. I mean, as I, dis, as I rediscovered the books, um, I, I, the themes in my life haven't changed. They've evolved, but they haven't changed. It was, it was, it was an amazing experience. I'm very grateful to, to you for having invited me so I could have this experience. Oh, well, my pleasure. Um, just before we go any further, I just want to tell you that we are getting this little thump from your microphone every so often. Um, I, I don't know if you might want to push to it, it just, just a little yeah. bit away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's start with book one, um, Fire in the Earth by David White. This was published in 1992. So it was around that time. So I actually, I don't remember how I learned about David White. Um, but I was living in Toronto at the time. Um, he was giving a reading and a talk at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, which was part of the University of Toronto, in a classroom. It was very low key. Um, I bought a ticket and I went. Wasn't a big poetry buff. I just, I guess whoever told me about it said you got to go because I don't remember. The, I don't remember the details, and I was just blown away because. Um, I had never experienced poetry like that. I'm not even sure I'd ever experienced poetry read to me by the poet. Um, but it was so heart opening. And that's, of course, what I was struggling with myself at the time and would be in my writing as well. Um, and just moved me so deeply and was profoundly spiritual. Um, and of course, I bought the book. <laughs> on the spot, he had books to sell. Um, and you know, there's a bit of a segue into the next book because I bought, because he read from, from Mary Oliver as well. And I bought that book at the same time as well. And both those books of poetry just spoke to me so profoundly about um, heart opening and about listening, listening to the voice of your heart and following that regardless. Um, and as someone who had always tried to fit in growing up and never really did, um, and who, who hid as much as he could. I mean, I, I have a vision of myself um, when I was, I don't know, four or five or six. I had two favorite hiding places in the house when company came. One was behind the TV, which was a big console TV that sat in the corner. And one was behind a big armchair that sat in the living room. And those are my hiding places. I just hid from the world. And, bo and, and both these, uh, both David White and Mary Oliver were all about taking yourself out into the world as who you are with an open, vulnerable heart. And of course it terrified me, but it was, but it was the path. So um, Dream Work by Mary Oliver, published mm -hmm. in 1986, is the second book on your list. Do you want mm -hmm. to expand on that at all? Yeah, I want to, um, I, in my write-up, I actually shared a, a couple of lines from the poem that, that David White read that, just blew me away. And I've used those lines over and over, over the years, even if I'd forgotten the book. Um, and she, she, she wrote, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. 
And of course, some of those voices are inner voices, the inner voices of fear as well. Um, but again, it was all about who you are in the world and being your authentic self. Um, something that I had run from as hard as I could for many years, which is why I hadn't written as well. Um, and suddenly I was being forced by me really to face that and to act on that and to be that and to be that. Mm. Yes. Yes. Um, it's, it's when you hear the words somebody says that describe, you know, how you feel and who you are. Um, it really goes right the way through, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And, and, and those words I just read from Mary Oliver have stuck with me all these years. And I find echoes of them in my own writing, uh, in, my own, in my own books on writing, telling people or guiding people on how, how to express themselves and the, and the best way to express themselves because we all get bad advice. It's well-meaning advice almost always, but that doesn't make it good advice. Uh, and you know, it's the best advice has to come from here ultimately, not from here. Does. And 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 both those both those books and others on 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 this list were really pounding that into me at a time when I really needed to hear that and to and mm. to and to step up to that. So her book um, has um, forty five poems. Is there? You've read a few words that really resonated with you. Is there one particular poem that you? love more than the others it would have been that one and i'm afraid i can't remember the title of that one i don't own that book anyway anymore either i have to say you know as i was going to i kept going on amazon i'm being really tempted to buy all these books again and really had to hold myself back because i don't really need them now you know but it was just so it was just it was just so tempting and this was one of the ones that i thought well maybe i should buy this again you know that's that's an interesting thing to play with, isn't it? Should I read that book again? Am I going to be disappointed because yes. I've grown beyond it? Or am I going to find things that I was unable to understand? Well, and that's really interesting, interesting point, because I have reread my own books. Um, a couple of years ago, I began a project of republishing new editions of all my books. So I had to reread them. And it was, I was a little terrified at first, because for the exact reason you say, you know, have I grown past this? Is it worse than I think, worse, is it worse than I remember? Am I going to want to make all these changes? And um, just as readers find things in books that writers don't know are there, um, which happens all the time and is both gratifying and a little mystifying, um, I found th things in my own writing that I hadn't realized were there because I had grown into them. Yes. So, so I would be fairly certain that if I were to reread some or all of these books, I would find I would find something new. Um, but there's so many other books to read that it's hard to want to go back to the old ones. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, it's interesting what you said there, that uh, you found things in your books that you've grown into. So it's almost as though when you were writing it, you were giving secret messages to your future self. Absolutely, in every book. Um, you know, when I reread the first book, which, is, which was The Moon Quest, um, so it's my first book, my first novel, um, I didn't know if I knew what I was doing. Um, certainly consciously, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and that was the one I was most scared to read because it was the first and so many had followed it. And you'd think, well, you've grown it. I would hope I was grow I've grown as a writer and grown as a person through that time. And um, 
yeah, there, there were things in there that um, I read from it at a deeper level than I consciously wrote them. Did you feel that you ought to go back and rewrite it? I mean, it's been some time since you wrote that book, and now you're on the fifth book in that series. Of well, that was my big, that was my, my big fear. Would I want to go back and change everything? Um, yeah. Was it not as well written as it could have been? Um, and apart from the few typos I found, embarrassingly, after all these years, um, there was nothing I wanted to change. And I was stunned by that and gratified by that and um, kind of in awe of that, not in awe of me, but in awe of the process that, 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 that allowed those, those words, those stories to, to come through me. Mm. Mm. So moving on to book number three, which is a, an incredible classic, winner mm -hmm. of the 1963 Newbery Medal, A Wrinkle in Time, by Madeleine Lengel, 1962, she published that. Right. And it's uh, beloved by many. Well, you know, uh, most people read that when they're in their teens. Um, I didn't, I only discovered it when I was in my 30s, um, along with a whole bunch of other um, fantasy authors, mostly young adult fantasy authors, who, who like Madeleine Lengel, wrote um, powerful metaphors for, for deeper spiritual truths in, in very, very simple stories. Um, you know, the A Wrinkle in Time is about the, the struggle between heart and head, um, ultimately, which of course was very much, I was, I, I came from a background, you know, where if I, if I couldn't touch it, if I couldn't see it, it couldn't exist. And my whole spiritual awakening was basically saying, if I can't see it and can't touch it, it probably exists even more. <laughs> um, and A Wrinkle in Time, um, and so much more by Madeleine Lengel, um, really, again, helped me get past that. Um, you know, I can't remember how many, I don't have the, the list in front of me, but I can't remember how many of these books are fiction or, or poetry or nonfiction, but I write fiction as well as nonfiction. I sometimes find the storytelling more powerful than the prescriptions. Yes. yes. Um, well, she, well, she said, didn't she, you have to write the book that wants to be written. And if the book will be too difficult for grown-ups, you write it for children. Right. And the thing is, she didn't write it for children. She wrote the book that she had to write. And yeah. one, of the inspire, one of the most inspiring things about this particular story, and I've told it in so many classes and, and in so many books, is that she'd already published adult, adult fiction before, before Wrinkle in Time. And when she submitted A Wrinkle in Time to her own publisher, it was turned down. They did not know what to do with it. And it took two years, and I think it was 26 rejections before somebody picked it up. And um, I saw an interview with her years ago on PBS where... Um, I guess after the 26th, after, I don't know which rejection, um, she said, I'm done. She covered up her typewriter and said, no more writing. This is just, it's not worth doing. And she walked downstairs to her kitchen. She had an idea for a book about rejection. She rushed back up to her typewriter and began working <laughs> on a new book. And she said, even if I've never published again, I'm a writer, period. And that was, that's been so, such a profound message for me because I've had my, I've certainly had my moments of wanting to walk away. Um, I went on strike <laughs> once for a couple of weeks, and that didn't, it's all, it only lasted a couple of weeks. Um, and that story always reminds me that 
this is who I am and this is what I do. And if nobody ever reads a book, which I hope is not the case, but if nobody ever reads a book, I still have to do it. Of course you do. Of course you do. She has a very interesting story. I was intrigued um, uh, checking into her that she, um, her father was a journalist and novelist and she didn't want to be in his shadow. So she, when she published her first book, A Small Rain, in mm -hmm. 1945, she used the name Lengel, which was her great-grandmother's name. And um, what particularly interested me there is the Lengels were French Huguenot Protestants mm -hmm. who fled religious persecution in the 16th century. I mean, my name, Sedgebeer, mm -hmm. obviously it was my married name, but mm -hmm. um, my ex-husband's family were also French Huguenots. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. And I didn't know that. Who fled and, and I, came to England. <laughs> right. And I didn't, I mean, I, I read tons of, of her books and I did not, I did not know that story. Um, you know, her, I did read a bunch of her memoirs and one of her memoirs is also on this list. Um, and she's also, she, she also wrote about writing uh, and the creative process. And those, all her books really spoke to me in terms of creative process and, and how I write and ultimately how I taught and how I teach. Um, and although she was, you know, she's Episcopalian and my spirituality is just kind of all over the place. Um, there were so many parallels. I, you know, every once in a while somebody says, well, you could meet anyone living or dead, you know, for, for dinner, who would it be? And for me, it's always been her. Really? Yeah. So, yeah. I just feel, yeah. I just feel such a, from having read so much of her, of her work, I just feel such a connection and such, and not parallels, but again, connections in terms of, in terms of, how how we've lived and and what we believed and thought and how we've written. Mm. It's lovely when that happens. It is. It is. And when I heard that she had died, I was hard. I was I was heartbroken. Yeah, felt you'd lost a friend. I'd lost a friend. I'd lost that dinner opportunity. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's probably laying the table up in the sky right well, now. Well, <laughs> you know, good. and uh, That's great. I, I'll be there when it's time. <laughs> don't, don't let it get cold. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so book number four, Letters to a Young Poet, Rana Maria Rilke, 1929. 1929. And that's that's such a classic for, for so many people on, on a spiritual journey or opening to a spiritual journey. I think what was most profound for me about this was they were written to a poet, to a writer who was feeling particularly insecure um, about his work um, and had written to Rilke for, for reassurance and for guidance. And as someone who was just starting a deep, I, I was writing, but I wasn't writing anything particularly from here. Um, as for, for someone who was, who was beginning on that journey of really going deep with my writing, um, those those um, those letters just touched me deeply, and and I could have been that young poet that real he was writing to, um, not only in terms of my spiritual journey, but in terms of my creative journey. It was um, yeah. it was it was just very it was just very moving for me, and that was a book I kept long after I, I kept after I got rid of all the books uh, for for a long time. I don't have it anymore, but um, I did keep it for a long time. Mm. Book number five, Writing Down the Bones, Freeing the Writer Within by Natalie Goldberg, 
1986. So that would have waited a little bit because that's when I began really opening to my creativity. So that would have been a few, um, a few years after some of the other ones. Um, what struck me so much about Natalie Goldberg, and I, I, I had already, I mean, my, 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 my writing journey, my creative writing journey began when someone talked me into going to a, a creative writing workshop. I kind of went like this and backed away because my kind of stereotypical version of uh, vision of a creative writing workshop is everybody wrote, they st stood up, read their writing, they were immediately gunned down, you know, pulled the blood, <laughs> and that was the end of the class. And I, you know, all my creative blocks, I think, were about judgment. Over the, you know, in, the, in, in past years. And so I said, no way. And she just persisted. This was, this was, I was working as a freelance editor at a magazine in Toronto and she was so soft-spoken. She was never pushy. In that moment, she pushed and pushed and pushed until I finally said yes. And it changed everything. And the way, the way um, this, this woman taught her, her writing workshop was very similar to, to Natalie Goldberg. And when I discovered Natalie Goldberg, I guess I devoured this and all and, and her other books as well because it really, it was like with Madeline Lingle, it blended creativity and spirituality in a way that I was experiencing. It wasn't just about writing, and it wasn't just about spirituality. It was it was the two as one. Um, and the way I write and the way I teach writing, or coach writers, comes from that same place of, of viewing. There's no, there's no separation. If it works for life, it has to work for creativity. If it works for creativity, it has to work for life. There's no, there's no other way. And 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 Natalie Goldberg's books were were a powerful validation of that for me. Book number six, the Genesee Genesee Diary, report from a Trappist monastery by Henri J M. Nguyen or Nguyen, depending on how you pronounce it. Right. <laughs> So in 1994, when I sold everything I owned, including all those books, um, it was to move to Nova Scotia from Toronto. Um, I felt a powerful call to go. There's a whole story behind that, which we don't have time for today, but I felt a powerful call to go. I sold everything, bought my very first car at the age of 39. Um, had to take driver's ed again because I had not driven for so many years that I was terrified. Of <laughs> I was terrified. Um, and... One day when I'm sitting in my very, in my rental in rural Nova Scotia, so I'm in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, I see in the, in the local paper that there's, there's a, um, a monastery of Carmelite hermits that at the time had a, had a compound inland accessible only through very rough roads. And once a year they had an open house. A little voice said, go. I get in my car, go over the bumpy roads, the, the, the boulder, the boulder, rocky roads. Um, and um, was very moved. Good Jewish boy at a Catholic mass. I was very moved. And as I'm walking back from the service, the, the, the um, father, Tom, I think it was, was the priest. He started chatting with me. I told him my story that I sort of come to Nova Scotia. I was on kind of a retreat. He said, you should come to Nova Nada. It was called Nova Nada. You should come to Nova Nada for a retreat. And I thought, well, I'm already on a retreat, really. Why would I want to do a retreat <laughs> within my retreat? So I said, thank you. And I said, I think about it. And I got home. And the next day I thought, he's right. I need to go back. 
So I called and booked a retreat. I think it was it was actually Thanksgiving week, U.S. Thanksgiving week. Um, all the monks were, were Americans. So I had my very first U.S. Th American Thanksgiving dinner um, in Nova Scotia. Um, and this book was in the library um, at Nova Nada. Um, and I think because I was on a retreat of my own, because I was struggling with being allowing myself to be more vulnerable in my writing. And, um, and Ari Nguyen was almost painfully vulnerable um, talking about his loneliness um, and, and his journey that I just, I, I just devoured it. And, and I felt such a kinship um, and also a challenge. Can you, do, can you do this? Can I do this? Can I open myself on the page in my work, in my life, in the way that this man has? <clears throat> and um, I, I like to think I have over the years. And of course, revisiting this, because it's a book I had totally forgotten about. It reminded me that yes, maybe not to that extent, who knows, but yes, I have. And, and this, was one of the, this was one of the books that, I'm not, not gonna say freeing it, challenged me to do it. Mm. You said it was the greatest gift he'd give that he gave you as a writer yeah. and a mentor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, someone else I would have loved to have met. And in fact, he was in Canada. He was he was he he lived north of Toronto, um, in a, in a community for a while, I think before he died. Uh, of course, um, I think I was already gone from Canada. I may have been gone from Canada by then, but still another 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 teacher, another mentor, another. He didn't know he was a mentor, but someone else it would, have, it would have been wonderful to sit down over coffee or, or dinner and, and just chat with. Mm. Your next book is one that we don't see very often on the I'm book surprised. Club. Um, and I am very surprised that we I'm don't. Surprised. So it's always a delight when it shows up. It's The Gifted <laughs> Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, mm -hmm. uh, 1943. We're not, not as old as not as old as um, uh, letters to a young poet, but we're getting we're getting back there. Um, again, it's a story about listening with a heart, and that was exactly that. That's that's what my journey was all about: listening with the heart, and the heart can see what the eyes cannot, which was expressed more eloquently in the <laughs> in the book. But that's that's the journey. It's it's it's. For me, it's it's not what you can see; it's what you can know. Yeah. It's not even what you can believe, or, or it's, it's what you can know, and that that has been my journey. It's you know, I mean, I remember in my early in my early days in Sedona, where going back many years, where you know people would see auras and hear voices. Um, I could not see them; I had to sense them. I was never given proof. I'm a Reiki master. I have nothing I, I use a whole lot, but I remember in my early in, in my in my in my classes and my early experiences, you know, people in the classes would say, "Oh, wow, my hands are hot." Is, I mean, really, I felt nothing, but I knew where my hands had to go, and and again, the whole journey has been about trusting what I can't see, trusting what I can't touch, trust, trusting that in what goes beyond my physical senses, and this book was part of that. It's it's. In very simple terms, it's listen with the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally get what you're saying. I have the, you know, same for me as well. Mm -hmm. um, yes, 
and uh, there is something, you know, and it, it's coming across to me just listening to you talk about some of these titles is that listening with the heart for me is a very childlike experience. Mm -hmm. It's It strips away, you know, who we've become as an adult and all of the things that we put on to be an adult. Right, and all um, the defences we've put on. Yes, yes, it takes you right back to that, that innocence, um, you know, that naivety, um, that open-heartedness. You know, we, we were talking before about re going back over my books and, and seeing things I hadn't seen before. You know, when we write from that place, we're not writing from here. So, of course, we're writing from the hidden depths that even we can't see in the moment. Yes. And, um, you know, I'm always challenged because, of course, each book challenges you more than the last one or why would I be doing it? Um, I'm always challenged to go deeper and to trust the story. Uh, one of the things that I tell in my classes um, is that the story is smarter than I am, uh, which again was proven by rereading his books and discovering things that I didn't know were there. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 there if we trust it, and if we trust it, we don't always we, we don't always get to see it at least not right away, and and that's as true on a spiritual journey as it is on a creative journey, which is why again for me the two just can't be, can't be separated. Yeah. Well, number eight is Madeline Lingle's book, A Circle of Quiet. Mm -hmm. What was it about this book? Um, this is the one where she talks most more about her creativity and her approach to writing. Um, I mean, I did read all her memoirs um, at the time. And, I mean, I, I read everything of hers I could find. Her, her books for adults, all the young adult fantasy, all the memoirs, everything. I just could not get enough Madeline Lengel. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll have a lot to talk about <laughs> So um, over that dinner. Um, be, a long meal. <laughs> be a long meal. <laughs> yeah, we have eternities. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, but this was the book where she really went into more detail about her creative process. Um, and it both inspired me and validated the ways that I had felt guided to write and felt guided to teach writing. Um, because she, again, you know, with the wrinkle and going back to wrinkle in time, um, it was the story she had to write. It wasn't the story she wanted to write. It wasn't the story. It wasn't a story like anything she had ever written before. Um, it wasn't a story in the, in the beginning, anybody wanted to read because it was turned down, you know, um, and in the end, it, it won the Newbery Medal and many other awards. It sold you know, tens of millions of copies. It's still, it's still read. Um, and so the heart, the heart does know, and this method does work. Mm. And she, you know, again, she, she validated that for me. She, she inspired me. She kept me going. And she talks about her doubts too, you know, and that, and that because it's not smooth sailing every, you know, every day, um, uh, either in life or in creativity. And uh, to to hear, you know, again, the vulnerability in her story was also helpful. Yes, and it's you know, thinking about writers, it's um, it's very hard to accept a re rejection letter. Um, if you've never been published, if you have been published, it's even harder 
Of course. (laughs) So, yeah, I can imagine that must have been quite an experience for her. Well, I mean, first to have your own publisher turn you down. (laughs) You know, it's like, whoa, you liked my work. What's wrong? You know, and then rejection after rejection after rejection you know it's it's and there was no cell there was no serious self-publishing in those days if you didn't get published picked up by a publisher that was it yes absolutely that, that yes. was it and yeah. and then to come to the place where where she knew she had to do it regardless yeah and i think that's that's the pl- that's the hardest place to come to because then you realize i'm not writing for an audience mm. i'm writing for me i'm yeah. writing because i have to yeah. And the audience, the audience is the icing on the cake. But this is, you know, every book I've written has been, or re, or reread that I've already written has been an activation, energy activation. It's it's pushed me. Um, and yeah. sometimes that isn't pleasant or pretty. Mm. And it's interesting how many classic books were rejected again and again and again. Water Ship Down, I think mm-hmm. a horrendous number of times that book was rejected before it found a publisher so, and became a movie. Dr. Seuss, I just read a story in one book I'm on right now. Theodore Geisel, his first book was turned down 27 times. Um, and I had the one of the regenerators in front of me because I I quoted from it. Not this is not juvenile fiction. Um, he is the <laughs> best-selling fiction author of all time. Still, he's won a Peabody, Pulitzer, and I think it was two Emmys. So you know, the reje- the rejections hurt. Um, I mean, hurt they hurt in a very emotional way, but they also hurt because you want to get your, you want to get out there. But ultimately, it's it's one man or one woman's opinion. Exactly. And you know what? When it does find a publisher and it is successful, it really hurts the publishers who turned it down. <laughs> so one more one more rejection story that I love. The Beatles were turned down by was it um, the they were they had a they had a mm. two hour audition on, on New Year's Day in in it was the same it was a same that Wrinkle in Time was published on New Year's Two. And the letter they got back was nobody wants nobody wants a four member boy band. Yeah. And the re- and the rest, yeah. you know, I, 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 just so many stories like that. I, I wrote a children's story for very very small children once, and I sent it to um, a publisher, and they wrote it back and said, "Today's children are not interested in magic." Now this was probably back in back in the you know seventies, I would say mm-hmm. the late seventies. But but of course, children are always interested. All of us are always interested it's, in magic. And I thought, wow, who are interested in magic? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I mean, tell me it's no good, hard. but don't tell me children are not interested in magic. Right. And so many of them are are like that. It's like it's yeah. not. This is a crummy book. It's Who's going to want to read this? Yeah. Um, that yeah. was the that was a theater guys and and Jean Le Carre, um, I think the he has no future. Um, Stephen King's Carrie was turned down many many times. 
Um, his wife pulled it out of the trash um, and ended up selling a million copies in its first year. So yeah, lots of publishers kicking themselves in the you-know-what <laughs> over yeah. the years. For, so if for, anyone's watching this who's been rejected, you know, you're in good company. Just keep very going. Good company. Very good company. In fact, all my books for writers have a chapter on famous rejections, which is how I know some of these stories. <laughs> which is how I know some of these stories. Okay, so number nine, I smiled when I saw this on your list because mm -hmm. this was a book that I read probably about the same time you read it. Mm -hmm. um, and it was the first Arthurian book um, that I read. And, you know, I've always loved the Arthurian mythology and it is The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart, published in 1970. And it may have been my first Arthurian story as an adult as well. Um, and I did go on to read the rest of the stories in the series. Um, and, I, you know, I was, I was reading fantasy. That's what was sustaining me, you know, Wrinkle in Time and, 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 and some of the other books. I finally got through um, Lord of the Rings. Um, I'd been given the trilogy as a bar mitzvah present. I could never get through it. And um, I, when I was back at Novenada, I had an audio recording, a BBC audio recording, dramatization of the first book. Um, and I listened to that because I was in a community of hermits. I like, couldn't no, 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 no one to talk to. Um, and I went out and bought the first used copy I could find and, and, and devoured it. So I was reading a lot of fantasy and, and those with Arthurian themes um, particularly touched me. I can't say why. But this story um, touched me, especially because it's, it's Merlin's coming of age story. Um, and um, in this version of the story, Merlin's parentage is, 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 que is questionable. And um, I had discovered, um, gosh, about a year after my mother died, so this, this was in the early mid-80s, about a decade before all of this happened, that um, the man I thought my, was my father was not my father. And so to read Merlin's story about this, this, this visionary who was is, who is awakening to his gifts, um, who comes from um, a kind of a cloudy past, just spoke to me so, so profoundly um, on so many levels. Um, and again, made me feel better about, about where I came from and where I was and where I believed I was going. Mm -hmm. And it's a lovely story, but, you know, but apart from, apart from everything else, it's just a lovely story. Yeah. That was one of the ones I was very tempted to pick up and read again, just again, just for the story. Yeah. I had to, you know, after that, I had to read all of her books. Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> So, book number 10, Journal of a Solitude by May Sarton, 1973. I've so never this was heard of book. May Sarton. Yes, this was another book that I found in the Novenada Library. I guess the community of premises is going to have a lot of books about solitude and loneliness. Mm. Well. <laughs> um, but I found that in, the, in their library. Um, and... Um, again, was very moved because A, I was on a retreat. Um, I had left everything behind in Toronto. I left my friends, I left everything I owned. I'd left, I had been to Nova Scotia once for basically just to check it out. Um, once I felt, when I felt moved to move, I had never been, except, and I thought sure, I'd been, I'd been through on the train once, but never spent any time there. And, um, you know, and my life since has, has been very solitary. Um, I've been single most of my life. I've lived alone most of my life. Um, and so 
reading the story of, of, of again, a powerfully creative woman um, who has lived or had lived um, a life of solitude um, and what that meant and what that was like and how that felt um, at a time when I had just retreated from the world. Um, double retreat, if you count the retreat within the retreat, um, was just, was very moving for me. And, um, you know, she talks about things like, like isolation. She talks about things about like self-doubt and, and, and letting go and failure and loss of faith. And those are all things that um, not only was I struggling with then, but I've dealt with again and again over the years, as, as, as do we all. Um, and that was, again, one of the books that, that I, had, I had forgotten about. And when I revisited, I thought, you know, those, those themes are still part of my life. You make the point that um, you say that uh, if you've read my other recommendations, you'll have noticed that with the possible exception of Natalie Goldberg's writing down the bones, none is from a spiritual teacher offering guidelines for living a spiritual life. <laughs> and, and it's a very good point that you make. Stories told by storytellers, you know, yeah. they, the personal experience is the teaching. It is. And, you know, I, I, one of the loveliest testimonials, testimonials I ever got many years ago was that, um, I wish I could remember it word for word, but it was basically that, that, that it's not my books that are inspira the inspiration, it's my life. Mm. Um, and of course, the books are an expression of that, but the life has to happen first, or there, or there are no books. Yes, and, yes, and, yes. The things and, we have to do for art, eh? <laughs> I, well, that's just what I was going to say. You know, the things I've I've lived I've lived through, um, not as bad as some certainly, but they've been they've been challenging. And you know, um, one of my friends said, "Well, what would you write about? <laughs> you know, if if those things hadn't happened?" And and yes. I guess I'd find something else to write about. But I think. When storytellers tell stories from the heart, it inspires others to allow themselves, to free themselves to be that vulnerable. Yeah. And which goes back to the beginning of our conversation about, about speaking from the hearts and, and, and being vulnerable, allowing yourself to be open in the world. You know, we, 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 we cloak ourselves because we feel scared. We, the world is a dangerous place and, and we hide. And, and I think a lot of my work is about encouraging people to come out of hiding, um, as I've felt I've had to do in the room of layer after layer after layer. And each book is a new layer for me as well as, as, well as for my readers. Well, that is your 10 best list. Now, let's talk about you. The first thing I want to know is, um, as such a prolific author, um, I was surprised that unlike others, you didn't include one of your own books on the list. Well, then I would have to include them all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, that's not allowed. You only yeah, allow know. one of I know, I know. Um, <laughs> you know I, I'm often asked which is my favorite book uh, that, I, that I've written. And my, my stock answer, and I'll tell you the real answer, the stock answer is, well, that's like asking a parent which is, you know, which is their favorite child. Um, mm. Um, but having said that, um, I think I would have to say that it's the Moon Quest because it was the first. Um, because it's the book, it's a book about about the about um, censorship and the freeing of storytelling. 
um, um, it's a book about telling your, being free to tell your stories. That's being free to, to, to be vulnerable. And I had come through so many years, decades of, of creative blocks. This was the book uh, at the beginning of my spiritual journey that unlocked it all. And um, not only my other, not only other books in, this, in, in what became a series, because it wasn't planned as a series. It wasn't even planned as a book. <laughs> it wasn't even planned, period. It actually happened in a writing. It began to happen for me in a writing workshop I was teaching. Um, but I think it's because it launched everything in terms of my own creativity and my own, uh, my own ability to, to go deep and tell stories um, that I would have to say that's the, that's my favorite. But as I, would, as I, but as I reread all the books, um, especially the fiction, um, it's, I think uh, you know, I, I'm most insecure about the fiction when, I, when I'm feeling insecure. Um, Again and again, I kept saying, "Well, who wrote this? It certainly couldn't have been. It certainly couldn't have been me." Um, you know, again, when we write from the heart, when we when we surrender to the story, yes. um, then it's not our story anymore. It's everyone's story. Yeah. Um, and that's the. I mean, writing what you know is not about writing about flying airplanes if you're a pilot. It's about writing what's in here. Because what's in here is common, is universal, is common to everybody, and um, and you can write a story about flying a plane, but you write it from here, not 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 from not on, not on the surface. Yeah. And I think again, the 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 Moon Quest was the beginning of that for me in in a, in a in a in a in a real way, and that's the book that no, it isn't the book that took me the it's, it's a book that took me the second longest to write. Would you say that was also the book that you most enjoyed writing? God no. <laughs> it was it was an experience of it was the most profound experience of letting go I'd ever had, because I did not know the story, I knew nothing about the story, um, except as it was coming to me every day. Sorry, the dog just heard something outside, um, and so it was letting go control in a way that I'd never let myself go and it's I, I, there were days when i didn't know what i was going to write from one word to the next let alone from one page to the next it was terrifying it was absolutely terrifying and there were early on i forced myself to write in bed first thing in the morning because i knew once i got up i would find excuse after excuse after excuse to run screaming from it um and then finally of course i surrendered and it was it was easier but it was it was not it was not the most fun book to write, and it was not the easiest book to write, but it was a book that made that freed me to do everything else. And what about the other books in the series? Were they easier? Um, the Star Quest was the hardest, actually. The Sun Quest was the easiest, um, and those. So the, the, when, I, when I began the Moon Quest, of course, as I say, there was there was no it was a, it be a one-off book. I had no plans to 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 write fantasy, I had no plans to write that book. I just kept going to see, I was curious to see where the story would go. Um, partway through, I recognized there would be two other books that, that would be called The Star Quest and The Sun Quest, I had no idea what they would be about. The Star Quest took me 11 years to write our first draft. Um, I started that first draft three times before I could finally finish it. Um, 
And I think sometimes we have to grow into the books we're writing. The books are, are way ahead of us. And I think that was, I needed certain experiences before I could complete it. Um, I also didn't realize, realize that I was writing part of the Sun Quest when I was writing the Star Quest. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. And when I began to write the Sun Quest, I realized chunks that I'd removed from the, from the Star Quest were actually part of the Sun Quest, which is why that was the easiest book to write because I'd already written part of it. Um, that I wrote that first draft in three weeks. So that just gives you a sense of, and for a lot of, a, a long time, I, th I thought that was the end of the series. It was a trilogy, it was over, it was done. Um, and a couple of years ago, I was living in Portland at the time. I just, I just knew there was another story. And I thought, well, but it, it comes to a completion. How is there another story? And I thought, well, I'll sit down and just sketch out or just write something. I decided to start it as a screenplay at that point. And I wrote an opening scene. And in this opening scene, um, a mother is telling her young son a bedtime story. And she gets to the end of the story. Normally he's asleep, but this time he's not. And he says, well, what happens next? And she says, that's the end of the story. And he says, no, 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 it's not the end of the story. And um, she says, that's, that's the end of the story. That's because it's, 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 she's referencing the story from the moon quest, star quest or sun quest, because in that time, those are, those are history. Um, it's, it's generations later. And he said, but, but in the moon quest story, Ulysha says, stories never end. So how can it be the end of the story? And I went, oh my, I mean, I, I went, oh my God, the story is telling me it's not over. So just get on with it. And of course, um, that book, the, the fourth book called The Bard of Brindoon came out, which sounds very Celtic, although it's not, um, <laughs> came out um, about a year ago. I think a year ago, I think a year ago, August. Um, and I'm now working on the next book in the series. And I already know the title of the book after in the series. So, whoops, sorry. So from a one-off to a trilogy to a series that who knows when or if it's ever going to end. Wow. And um, you know, some movies are going to be made? So um, I have an independent uh, producer interested, originally interested in the Moon Quest and now interested in, in all of them. Um, in fact, at a certain point, I... Um, switched from the, the, the Bart of Brindu and screenplay and went back to working on it as a novel. And I sent it to, to Kathleen um, before it was published to, um, to see what she thought. And she wrote back and she said, this is the movie I want to make first. And I went, oh, I hadn't planned to ever finish that screenplay until the other movies were made. And, you know, the movie business just drags on and on and on and, 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 and COVID didn't help and raising money, especially for big budget movies as a challenge. So it's happening, but it's, it's, it's the tortoise in the, in the race, you know? Um, but she, because she said, because she loved the Bard of Brindoon, a book I was very insecure about so much, um, I actually went back and, 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 and finished that screenplay. So I have four screenplays ready to, ready to roll. Um, and, um, Hopefully, in the next couple of years, this 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 will will, will get moving again. So you you've also written a book called Organic Screenwriting, writing for yes. film naturally. When did you know film and screenwriting crop up in your life? So, um, the Moon Quest 
had not been published yet. Um, though I, 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 I'd had an agent and, and she hadn't managed to, to, to place it. So I was just kind of sitting on it. I was on the phone one day with a friend and she said, you should write a screenplay. I thought, I don't know anything about screenplays. And then I thought, well, you didn't know anything about writing novels either, you know, so you can't use that one as an excuse. So I ignored it. And she mentioned it again a few months later and I ignored it. And that's a little bit of a pattern here. And she mentioned yeah. it a few months later and I thought, well, we'll see. So I was, I was actually on an open-ended road journey then too. And I, I, I went into, um, I was going to Santa Fe. So I went into Borders in Santa Fe at the time and looked for books on screenwriting to see if I could find a book that, because I knew screenwriting was very technical and very kind of engineered. And that was not how I wrote. Um, or how I write. And I thought, I wonder if I can find a book that is a little bit more intuitive. And I did not. I found books that kind of were on the fringes of that, but everything was very rule bound. So I wrote the screenplay anyhow. Um, and that was when, when I met the producer at a book signing for the Moon Quest a, a few months later. And that's how all that happened. And she loved the screenplay. So I guess I figured I could write screenplays. Um, and decided that if I couldn't find a book on screenwriting that expressed my philosophy, which apparently works because someone likes my screenplay, um, then I would write, I would write my own. Um, and I called it organic screenwriting because I wanted to differentiate it from all the books on screenwriting that were so engineered. Um, you now screen, screenwriting is so often taught as an engineering project not as a creative project. And one of the loveliest testimonials I got from a screenwriter was saying, thank God we have a book on screenwriting that focuses on, on storytelling. Yeah. And that really is, so it's, it's called um, Organic Screenwriting, Writing for Film, comma, naturally. Yeah. What are you reading now? What am I reading now? I'm reading a novel um, and I can't remember the title of it, which is kind of embarrassing. I'm reading it on my, on my um, Kindle. Um, I have, I hardly really read any nonfiction anymore. I'm all about stories and storytelling. Um, and I particularly like stories set in the South because Southern writers just have such a, an amazing U.S. South of telling, of, of, of telling stories. Although this one um, is actually um, set in, odd, oddly, New Mexico and Devon. <laughs> so... Um, Difference. A little yeah. bit different, yeah. Um, so I got my new my New Mexico bit in there, um, but it's also told from women's women's perspective. And a lot of the, the fiction I'm reading are also women's stories because they tend to be more open mm. and more vulnerable, mm. and and less about action and more about character. And it's stories uh, stories that are about people. That I, that I care about. If I don't care about the people, I don't care about the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm old enough now that I don't, I don't give books as much of a chance as I, as I used to. If, 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 uh, if, the, if the characters don't, if I don't feel them, then I move on. Yes, um, yes. You know, it's, it's an interesting thing you're saying there because, I mean, I'm the same and I have little tolerance, um, <laughs> but I've become an Audible fan. And uh -huh. the thing that I'm noticing, if the voice isn't right, mm -hmm. then that's what 
right you know kills it for me the voice has to be right if i hear a voice that feels so wrong i just can't Mm -hmm. finish the book so the book is called the lost girls of devon the lost girls of devon Okay. Yeah, I just, I just I lost. Yeah, lost girls. Of, I just had a. I just cheated and looked looked at my phone. Lost girls of Devon. Um, and it's it's a, it's a generational story. So there's a um um a mother, her her daughter and her mother. Um, I think I've and, heard of this. Uh, yeah, and I think it it won some awards. Um, yeah. Um, I have a hard time with with ebooks. Oh, sorry, with the audio books because my mind wanders. So, really? so yeah, yeah, I go off and I suddenly realize I've missed, I've missed too much. So um, having said that, I'd love to see my books as audiobooks. I get that asked a lot. Um, one of these days. Well, I have to listen to Audible because I have to differentiate between the books I have to read for uh, all the interviews, um, right. which are usually nonfiction, and mm-hmm. the books that I want to read. Um, right. So I do it in the car when I'm driving, and that way, right. you know, I'm a captive audience. Right. right. Well, I'm glad I gave you some fiction to to break things up for you on my on my list. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, before we close, the sixty four thousand dollar question. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite authors, the late best selling author Jorge Luis Borges, said mm-hmm. that when writers die, they become books which is, after all, not too bad an incarnation. Indeed if not. that is true, what kind of book would you like to become? Ooh. Well, it would be fiction, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be a story told from the heart. And it would probably be um, a fantasy of some sort, something from another world, another Something that that speaks, you know, fantasy allows us to forget about this world and and get our messages unfiltered by the distractions of this world. So I think I think that um, yeah, something that that is of another time, another place, um, another world. Um, that speaks from the heart um, and just has amazing characters in it and touches people deeply. Good answer. Mark thank David you. Gerson, thank you for adding your 10 best list of no B, uh, spiritual books to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's library of recommendations. I've it really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise. Thank you, Sandy. It's always lovely to talk to you. You too. Well, you can learn more about Mark David Gerson's books and his spiritual counselling and coaching services at his website, markdavidgerson.com. Now, before we close, as you all know, the spiritual book market is becoming increasingly crowded and it's becoming ever more challenging to sort the wheat from the chaff, which is why we launched the No BS Spiritual Book Club. So we could provide you with trusted recommendations from authors, teachers, speakers, and others who've walked this path before you, like Mark David. Um, So please check out our free 10 Best Spiritual Books archive at the No BS Spiritual Book Club. Uh, com. You'll also find previous episodes of this interview series and you can add your name to our Save My 
space list to get last minute reminders of upcoming episodes. That's it for this week. I'm Sandy Sedgbeer and I'll be back with another edition of the No BS Spiritual Book Club's interviews at the same time next week. Till then, it's goodbye from me.